Father, we do applaud you that you love that young man. You called someone to invite him. You had somebody to cook barbecue for him. His car worked, and he got here. And then he saw the love of true community. He felt a power that comes from the Holy Spirit in, in the bodies of believers, and it was beautiful. It was intriguing. And then, Lord, he heard about the Savior who binds all men together at the cross and binds man together with the Creator at the cross. So we thank you that this young man is now on the way with us, walking on the path on the bridge from here to heaven, paved with the blood of Jesus. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. He is, the old has gone, the new has come. And we, we thank you for that for each one of us. And I pray, Lord, for someone today, they would meet you at the cross. They would experience the unity that comes from being united with the King and United with all believers from around the world, all races and cultures and colors coming together at the cross. We want that more than we want life. Would you do that in this church? We pray that in Christ's name, his glorious name. Amen. If you turn on the television to most any channel, it doesn't take long before you hear someone say, we are a divided country. It's a very popular thing to say, sort of whips people into a frenzy. It's great for politicians to increase their polling numbers, and it's great for news agencies to increase their ratings. Even if you don't have an answer, just to shout out, we are a divided nation, it seems to be the hip thing to say today, even without an answer. It's sort of like country music. Country music doesn't have to have an answer. It just needs to pose a problem of, like, she broke my heart, she stole my dog, and married my best friend. And people gather, they flock, 20,000 people say, that's what happened to me. Isn't that a great song? <laughs> and really no answer. You just sort of gather together and cry. And that's the way it sort of is in this generation with talking about divisions. People talk about them, and it seems to excite people, but nobody has an answer for a divided world, except the Apostle Paul. The reason he wrote Ephesians chapter 2 is to say that even in a divided country, a divided world, there is one place where true eternal unity exists that's in the body of Christ, the household of faith, the church of the living God. Ephesians 2, for Christ himself is our peace who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. So over the next few weeks, I think we'll take a few looks, biblical looks at uh, the ending of racism, the ending of prejudice and bigotry biblically uh, by enjoying the unity for which Jesus Christ came and died. Sir Philip Gibbs wrote, Modern progress has made the whole world a neighborhood, and God has given the church a task of making it a brotherhood. Many people are disillusioned with that statement, like it's just pie-in-the-sky talk. It's, it's not possible. But the Apostle Paul was for real and meant business when he wrote that for the past 21 centuries, this is what God has been doing through Christ in the church, the verse we read a minute ago, Christ, the peacemaker. 
between God and man and between man and man. Now, the two groups that Paul spoke about in Ephesians chapter 2 that we'll look at over the next few weeks are Jews and Gentiles. And the easiest way to identify a Gentile is everybody that's not a Jew. So the basic of the world was composed of those two groups, Jews and non-Jews. And I'm going to tell you that none of the racial barriers that exist today in the United States come close to the hostility and hatred that existed between Jews and Gentiles. If a Gentile woman was giving birth and a Jewish woman, a Jewish midwife knew about it, she was not allowed to help in the birth process because Jews were saying, you're simply bringing another heathen into the world. If a Jewish man or woman married a Gentile, the families would have a funeral celebrating the death of their, or recognizing the death of their, their child. So when God began bringing Jews and Gentiles into the same church, it was a miracle. The tension was high, and it was not going to be solved overnight. Uh, it's so high that you can see it in Acts 15. They were still working at how we can be unified when we come from such vast backgrounds. But despite the obstacles, Paul reminds the church this is why Jesus came. You who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one. It's interesting when you look at a cross, an actual cross, it has a vertical beam and it has a horizontal beam. I think intentional by God that Jesus would die in the first century when that was the means of execution to remind the world of the vertical component of salvation right with God and the horizontal component of salvation right with other believers who likewise have turned to God. So when a man is united with God, who loves all races and colors and cultures, when a man is united with that God, he will also inherit that God's love of all races and colors and cultures. Jesus Christ came to invite or to unite man to his neighbor, whether that man lives in Alabama or that man lives in Angola, whether that man has $300 million in a bank account or $300, all one in Jesus Christ. And I'm going to tell you, if the gospel is an authentic answer, if we could say we have an authentic answer for the problems of the world, then it must demonstrate its power through the uniting of all races and cultures. If I'm connected by faith in Jesus Christ and you're connected by faith in Jesus Christ, we are connected. And that must be manifested in seen in every local church and the global church as well. In order to bring about this unity, uh, that Paul wanted between Jews and Gentiles in the first century, he first started dealing with the Gentiles. That's who he spoke to first because they were the ones that had some issues that were struggling with feeling a part of the church. And the role that Paul played in their life was to tell them, you belong, Gentiles, non-Jews. You belong in the kingdom for which Jesus Christ, the Jewish Messiah, died. I know it's impossible for you to know how often this building is used throughout the week. We're seeing it. It's blowing our mind. The college kids that were here Friday night and then 
Monday and Tuesday, you know, Wednesday morning is women, their Bible studies all over the place. Monday and Tuesday night is a precious ministry called English Crossing. Can imagine coming here as an international, you don't know the English language or don't know it well, or you want to know it better. And we have so many adults, believers gathering to teach these precious ones that God is bringing from the cultures and ethnicities and races, nations of the world. Two weeks ago, a woman from a Latin American descent said to Katie, our, our girl who heads up uh, English Crossing, loving everything, feeling the love of Christ, ask her a question that I found interesting but should not in light of this passage in Ephesians 2. She said... We love English Crossing, our family. Are we allowed to come here on Sunday morning? And Katie has earned with her walk with God, her moral authority, her compassion, larger than the city smile, said, you belong here. That is the message of Ephesians chapter 2 to Gentiles who were filled with self-condemnation in thinking they didn't belong with the insiders. So a church, if we're going to see unity, a church must specialize in, or, or two messages have to happen. The believers that are new, well, let's just say the believers that have been existing for a while, they must be used by Jesus Christ to say to new ones, you belong here. And we must say that in a thousand ways. You belong. Then the believer that's new himself or herself must hear from Jesus himself, the Lord saying, you belong. So twice the message must be heard by those who are coming from different cultures and races and and all sorts of backgrounds. When Paul began writing this section of the book of Ephesians, the Gentiles had a tendency. They didn't believe it. They, it was hard for them to believe that the gospel welcomed them into the church. So his message was to tell them, you do belong. You have a place in Christ's family. But what you're going to see right now is the strangest strategy for telling somebody they belong. Because he tells them, you shouldn't belong. But you do by God's grace. You know, it's, it's amazing. Sometimes we, we say you don't know how good the good news is until you know how bad the bad news is. So in order to help them appreciate God's unstoppable love to bring them in, he tells them five ways in which they should have been stopped. So after he deals with them who feel less than, then at the end of the chapter, which we'll see in weeks to come, he deals with the Jews who had a tendency to feel more than and to say you're all on level ground at the foot of the cross. But this is how he deals with the Gentiles. Therefore, remember that formerly you were Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. 
You know, there is a technique that some people use in counseling to try to get people to, as much as they can, forget their past. I don't think that's healthy. I always take people back to their past and say, we, we need to go back to the crash site. We need to go back to the, the, the place where pain, the source of hurt began to see how God wants to enter into that and bring that out. And that's just what Paul is doing, is going back before there was hope. So that when they would see hope, they would explode with joy. That's why we take so much time around here at Hope Point to tell you how bad the bad news is. We want to work for your, the explosion of joy when you find out how much God has done to come after you. This is the five ways in which they were in a, a bad way. They were first without respect. Ephesians 2.11, Therefore remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth, and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves uncircumcision. So the circumcised group in this text would represent those Jews dating all the way back to the moment when God saw them enslaved in Egypt. And he took them out. And as a sign that they would forever remember the kindness of God to rescue them when they were powerless and undeserving, he circumcised the male foreskin of every little baby, of every male, so that they would forever have a visible symbol of what God did in their life, His undeserving yet saving love. Well, how did they do with this privilege? Not too well. From that point on, everybody in the world that was uncircumcised, they looked at them with derision. They sneered at them and rejected them as uncircumcised. They rejected people for something they had no control over, the race into which they had been born. So uncircumcision, to call somebody, hey, you belong to the uncircumcision, was a racial slur, derogatory painful racial way of separating people. Again, because of something they had no control over, their race. You ever been rejected for something you had no control over? It probably doesn't refer to a lot of you in this place. Your nationality, skin color, Your, your background, your education, your, your wealth or lack of wealth. When somebody rejects you for something you have no control over, it's horribly crushing to the human spirit, as painful as it gets. And Paul was reminding them in this verse of he was reminding the Gentiles of the racism that had been inflicted upon them, not so that they could remember and repeat it, so that they could remember and never repeat it to someone else that God would bring into their life. And by the way, when Paul calls, says, you are called uncircumcised by, this, by, the, by the circumcision, he he says, at the end of verse 11, by the way, those who are 
slurring you are circumcised only by human hands. This was Paul's way of reminding the Gentiles that those who are attacking you have only been touched by human hands. They haven't been touched by God. They don't speak for God. The voice you hear from them is not God's voice deriding you. So don't listen to their voice. Don't throw throw away your hope when you are the victim of bigoted racial slurs. Don't throw away your hope when somebody rejects you because where you were born and where you came from, they're not speaking for God. Because His voice is reliable and truthful and welcoming no matter where you came from. The second way in which these Gentiles were in trouble is they were without salvation. Verse 12, Ephesians 2, remember that time you were separate from Christ. Or literally, you don't have a Messiah. The only Messiah that God has ever sent, Messiah meaning anointed one, the Hebrew word for Messiah, anointed one, translated by the Greek equivalent, Christos, Christ. It means the one and only man in the history of the world that God has appointed and anointed to come to earth to be the Savior of the world and to make all things new. Only one man has been the Messiah, and God was telling these Gentiles, because you have rejected Israel's Messiah, you've rejected the only Messiah. There's You don't have a Savior, Gentiles. Because you look to another man and you look to another way. You're without a savior in the world. Third way that he tells them they were in trouble, they didn't have any community. You were, verse 12, you were excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise. Well, because they rejected Israel's Messiah, they also rejected the belonging to Israel as a covenant nation of God. So you can look at all the times in which God spoke to Abraham or maybe he spoke to David. Beautiful, powerful promises to the covenant nation of Israel that God was going and will save through Christ. They didn't belong to that nation because they had rejected the God of Israel. So they had no community to belong to. I mean, they might have experienced some community like when they were partying together. But it was shallow and it was short-lived. But they didn't belong to a community where they could gather and do what we did on Sunday morning and sing to God and pray to God and cry out to God who would hear them. They were without community. The utter statement of loneliness in the world. And fourth, he says, they were without hope in verse 12. You don't have any hope. Hopelessness occurs when you don't have anything to look forward to. It occurs when you... Hope occurs when, when no matter what is happening in the world, you know that there is something permanent and reliable that you can count on that is going to happen in your life. That's, that's what hope is. Looking forward to that which can never be lost or taken from you. Gentiles had no security about the future. They had no idea what's going on in the future. They had no Hope. Now, how did they handle this? Well, some Gentiles handle that by simply, as many do in our generation, you just party yourself into numbness so you don't have to think about the future. Others said, 
There is no future. They held to a belief like G. Gordon Liddy did prior to the Watergate scandal and his salvation when he said, when you die, you become food for worms. Others of these pagan Gentiles believed that you just became a disembodied wandering spirit in the universe. Again, to me, a picture of loneliness, hopelessness. And then others believed that you were reincarnated, reincarnated based on how well you did in this life depended on your rewards or judgments in the next life. How would you feel about that future? So they had no hope. And finally, number five, they were without God as you would expect. Verse 12, they're in the world, living on earth, but they have no God. You see, true hope depends on you being connected to somebody who promises you stuff. But the person who promises you stuff has to be reliable. He has to be able to keep his promise. So whoever, whatever they were trusting in was not God and therefore did not have the capacity and the reliability to keep his promises. That's why they were without hope because they were without God who was reliable and was not able. So the apostles' rem reminders of these five ways in which they were separated from God are so strong and they're so overwhelming, you feel like you are a little child in the ocean getting beat by wave after wave and you come up gasping for air and all of a sudden another wave gets you until you get to number five and you're out and then all of a sudden the apostle Paul throws the lifeline of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13. But, whew, now in Christ, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. Now just think about these people. Without respect, without a Messiah, without a home, without hope, without God, and now they have been brought into the presence of God, united with him through Christ. I love, Paul says, you see that all the time in the book of Ephesians, in Christ. Everybody in this room today, you fall into one of two categories. You're either in Christ or you're not in Christ. If you're in Christ, you are bound forever to the body that you possess now with all of its guilt and tendencies toward guilt-doing things. You're bound to that. In, in, if you're in the flesh, you're bound to the flesh. If you're in Christ, you are bound to eternal divinity. Everything that's His will one day be yours. Where He is, you will be. Paul says you're in Christ, and because of this, they are now flooded with peace. This is where peace comes from. What's the greatest thing that any man can be given in life? Just peace. Peace with God through Jesus Christ. So that's what the cross is all about. To bring you peace by providing God a place through the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. By providing God a place to take out his anger on your sin. To take out his judgment on your sin so that at that moment your sin would be judged and your guilt removed. And you are now at peace with God. There's nothing separating you from God. Your sin, your guilt is gone. The result is peace with God. And that's why Jesus came. 
This is what peace is, knowing that God has taken away your sin, knowing that you have a place in heaven, knowing that you can preach a sermon at age 58 after many years of failing God, and it's acceptable to God because he's equipped me. I have peace today, a peace with God because I'm united with him through Christ. And that's what Paul wanted these self-condemning Gentiles to know. God didn't have to do any of this, but he wanted to do this. Jesus didn't have to die, but he wanted to die to bring them peace with with God. You remember after Jesus rose from the dead, um, his disciples were locked in a room. Uh, They had abandoned him at the cross, denied knowing him, ran like little baby children behind closed doors, ashamed and afraid. And then in John chapter 20, through that locked door in walks Jesus Christ with a message to his betrayers. John 20, 19, on the evening of that first day of the week, this is after the resurrection, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be to you. Peace. I'm not angry with you. I forgive you. I know you just betrayed me, but that's why I died on the cross. So that decision on your part would also be covered with blood and no longer separates you from God. So whenever worldly accusations assail you, whenever the world and the flesh and the devil say you're weak and you're indifferent and you're cold, true, You're a failure, a liar, a hypocrite. True. You're perverted, selfish, jealous. True. Hear Jesus go into the upper room and bust through those doors and say, you were forgiven, you were cleansed, and you were mine. That is where peace comes from. That's how you have peace with God. And peace with one another. What's the basis of true peace in this world horizontally? When two people come together looking at the cross and both of them are equally astonished that this reality of peace with God would be made possible through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. When I'm astonished and you're astonished and we're equally astonished looking at God, when we look at each other, then and then alone we'll have peace. With each other. The cross is essential to peace in the world. It's the only place where peace occurs. Until you have peace with God, you will not, you cannot have peace with man. That's what God, Paul says in verse 14. You've been brought near through the blood of Christ, both of you. He himself is our, both, peace, who's made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier the dividing wall of hostility. If you would have looked at the tension that existed in the first century between Jews and Gentiles, you would have put all your money on some machine at Vegas and said, never will peace occur. It looked impossible until it happened when God brought two people together, both astonished at His grace at the cross. You know, when I begin my ministry, you talk about things you just don't see coming. 
I would have never thought back in 1986 when I was 26 that I would have ever been standing on a stage in a building that's a converted car dealership here where they lubed and oiled and repaired engines right here was the, the, the pit. I'd be standing on a con- this, this building converted and f- five weeks ago would stand a woman from South Asia, Muslim, coming to Christ, speaking to a group of men and women about the unity that we have in Jesus. I would have never thought back when I was 26 years old, I would be part of a church that says to its worship leader and its children's, one of its children's pastors, y'all leave this week, it's where Hunter is, why he's not here. Y'all leave, go to the Middle East, take a team, and spend a week working with missionaries, living in that city, sharing Christ in a state that's 100% Muslim. But all of these people, you get it. This is why Jesus died Vertically to bring us to God, horizontally to bring us to one another. And all of that happened through the birth and the death, uh, the life, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this is what God told us would happen way back. The book of Isaiah, the prophet said, Isaiah 9, for to us a child, he said, all of this peace is going to happen through a child. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. It's a new country, new country. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This new country would be dominated, would be marked by peace. I read a story recently about one of, a battle in World War II where Americans were firing on a German farmhouse where Germans were held up in. Bullets flying across this field. The farmhouse was owned by a family that was living next door. And when all the exchange started, the family, husband and wife, parents rushed in with their children into the farmhouse. And somehow, in the middle of all of that conflict, their little two-year-old boy got away from them and walked out of the farmhouse in the middle of that field where all of those bullets were firing And when Americans and Germans alike at the same moment saw that child, a ceasefire was shouted on both sides, and that day the war ended for those groups. The peace that has come to the world has come through a child. Of course, the story biblically that's different than the one historically The child sent from heaven, unlike the child in that German farmhouse, the child sent from heaven did not live, but walked onto the battlefield knowing that he would take a bullet, knowing he would take a cross, but did so in order to shed his blood to eliminate the tension between God and man and between man and man. The root cause, this is important, the root cause of all strife and discord, the root cause of all antagonized antagonism and enmity and hate and bitterness and fighting, the root cause of all war, conflict, and every other form of disunity and division is sin. And therefore, the remedy of all disunity is the removal of sin. That's why Jesus Christ shed his blood on that battlefield, to remove the thing that was causing the disunity between God and man and between man and man, and that was 
our sin. Racism ends when you watch God bring somebody into the kingdom that's totally different than you. Different race, different ethnicity, different socioeconomic level. And you realize the requirements of them coming into the kingdom were the same requirements of you coming into the kingdom, the shed blood of Jesus Christ. According to God's measuring tape, that person is no more sinful than you are. And according to God's scales, you are no more deserving than they are. The shed blood of Jesus Christ was needed for both at the foot of the cross It is at the foot of the cross where racism is destroyed and unity is born. A few days ago on this stage, I was preparing for a wedding and the family of the the party wanted a cross. So dear, precious symbol of how to love supernaturally the cross. So... A man in our church, running to sound today, or video, built the cross. I went and picked it up at his house and brought it here in my truck. An interesting thing happened on the way to the church that day. It was at a traffic light just up the road. I stopped, and a car full of people pulled beside me at that red light. And the woman driving rolled down her window and said, in the most beautiful, deep southern accent, we love your cross. (laughs) I don't know if I'll ever see, probably won't, those people in that car. It's one thing I'm sure of, though. We have many differences between us. No doubt many family experiences, different, much education, different, employment, different. We have different trials, different sorrows. We have different flaws in our body that will cause us to sin in different ways. But despite all of those things, we have one thing in common. That day on Asheville Highway, we both love the cross. And in that moment of hearing her shout out, we love your cross Beautiful, supernatural, peace-giving, people-binding unity filled up my truck and filled up my heart because it is at the foot of the cross that all people come together in perfect unity between God and man and man and one another. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for my brothers and sisters around the world that you've allowed me to meet and travel. I thank you for those that I went to school with back in high school, so different than me and yet so meaningful to me, bound together in deep love through the cross. And no doubt about it, God, they were no more sinful than I was. We sinned together at times, and we were forgiven together through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Father, our hearts break for the, the global tension and the national tension that's being aggravated by the powers of darkness and by those who use their tongue for one purpose, not to unite, but to divide. 
And Father, we declare today as a people, we will not use our tongue to divide. Not in our speech to one another, not in our speech at home, not in our speech on Facebook or other forms of social media. We will not divide, God. It is dishonoring to you. We will seek to use our tongue to tell all the Gentiles of the world, all the Jews of the world, all Latinos, all Asians, all the rich and all the poor, those in high places, those in prison, those who have no education and those who teach in universities. We will use our tongue to tell them that Jesus Christ died for your sin, rose from the dead for your sin. We will seek to do all that is in our power to bring people into a relationship with God, to experience the peace of God that they might know in society, in their family, in their marriage, and in their church, in their community, and across the street. The precious unity of Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.